You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit hopekelowna.ca. Lord God, you are the blessed Trinity. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We must stop and take a moment to appreciate your worth and your value. You are precious. You are majestic. You are our king and you are worthy of our praise. Oh Lord, help us, oh, today to have the eyes to see how precious you really are. So easily we wander, yet, Lord, would you call us today? Would you stir our hearts and soften them that we might bring glory to your name as we submit to you? We ask, O King, that you would be honored and glorified through our praises today, for you alone are worthy. In your precious name we pray, amen, amen. Well, good morning, and I'm thankful for those of you who are able to join us online and continue to participate in our worship services. Um, I, uh, I, I want to invite every one of you at some point, I think you should, if you can, it would be great to one day show everyone just what this kind of looks like up here. It's, uh, it's, it's a different perspective if you were to move the camera, I hope you can go back and look at some of the pictures from the family chat last week. Um, it's, a, it's a unique perspective. And, uh, and it's a different angle to see things, for sure. I, I actually, thinking of angles, I, I always find the interpretation of art just a little funny, um, maybe a little silly. And I, I know, I'm sure I'm being immature, and, and, and there's probably some art major out there who is scoffing at what I'm saying, but... I honestly find them just strange. Like, I find some of the photos that, and especially the value they're given, they're given. It's just, it's crazy. Here, we've got some photos. I want to show you some of these photos of uh, some, fo- some art that has been selected and, uh, and just how valuable they are. So if we can pull those photos up. Look at that. Um, this one is a, let me describe it to you if you, if you can't see it. It's uh, it's, it's basically a blue rectangle with a white line in the center. And it doesn't even look like it's been shaded in very well. Like if I was there, that person's parent, I probably would say, like, learn to color in the lines. All right, uh, and it's worth 43.8 million. The next one, um, more vertical lines of different colors. And of course, it's worth $84.2 million. Crazy. All right, and this next one here. It's called Orange, Red, and Yellow. Um, it's a great, you know, I feel like they described this with as much creativity as they painted it. And it's worth $86.9 million. Or, or this other one here. Literally scribbles. Like, we are literally looking at scribbles that ended up being worth $69.6 million. That's just, it's outrageous. And I don't know, do we have another photo? Yeah, okay, so this one... This one just looks like somebody spilled glue and dropped all the cuttings of paper and just 
threw it on the... I, I don't get it. I know I'm belittling this, and I'm sure there is someone out there who I hope... I just can't wait to receive the emails of correction for how I have perceived these as wrong. Um, the reality is art is made like this. Um, art is made uh, often for people to see it uh, subjectively, for them to see it from their own point of view. Things, are, things like this are, are made so that you can come with your own creative perspective and from whatever angle you want to approach it, um, you might find your own meaning. Even just like silly things inside my brain goes like somebody looking at a picture like that and, and saying like, oh, you can sense from the use of color the tension they had in their relationship with their mother. And then the other person says, mm, yes, I can sense their anger. And, and everyone makes these comments, and it's just ridiculous, really. Uh, because people, to me, I'm going to be honest, it just looks like scribbles. But the reality is this is what it's made for. This art is made for you to reinterpret and to see it from your own perspective and to project your feelings on it. But the reality is most stuff in, in the world is not like that, is not like art in that sense. What it's like is that uh, most things are made with a purpose. Most things are designed with a purpose in mind. They have a certain use in mind. It's not to be used subjectively. Like, for instance, you can't use a toaster as a bath toy. All right? You can't use it, well, you could do it once, but that's it. Um, or you can't use a light bulb as a hammer. Okay, you're not going to get very far with those ideas. These things have been designed with a purpose in mind. And so what we have to understand is that that's not just how most of the world is made, but that's how the whole universe has been designed. That's how truth works. Truth is, is absolute. There is a way for it to be seen, and that is the true way. Um, it doesn't matter what, try and, what type of perspective you kind of try and bring to it, or maybe what kind of... Um, filter you kind of see the world through. Uh, truth is absolute. It cannot be changed no matter how much you try to uh, change your perspective. The reality is it, when you do that, you start to distort the truth. You start to live in a false world, in a fake world. You cannot look at the truth from your own angle, through your own interpretation, and still call it truth. There is an absolute truth, and it doesn't matter what we try to position ourselves around it. We must see it the way it was meant to be seen. And this goes continually on to especially God things. You cannot treat the things of God as trivial or as hobbies or as interests that you can just make subjective in your life. It doesn't leave itself to be interpreted that way because the truth doesn't bend to our preferences. The truth doesn't bend to our preferences. We have to understand that we have to submit ourselves, come humbly under this idea that we need to find a way to be changed by God from our heart and in our minds. We need to renew our minds that we might see the truth for what it is. So we ask ourselves today, is your view, is my view, is our view distorted or different than the way God sees things? And that's why the title of this sermon is Give Me Eyes to See Like Jesus. Um, though my, through, through my perspective and, and th through my own goggles of sin and selfishness, uh, the world ends up being all about me. If I look at everything as if the world revolves around me, uh, to be honest, it's a very disappointing world to live in. And today we must be willing to humble ourselves and accept that we don't see 
things the way God does because of sin in our lives. It's not because of our inability. Um, yes, God is omnipotent and he sees things differently in that way. But the truth, we miss out on the truth of how we are to live and how reality is. Not because of our inability, but out of rebellion. In the passage today, we're going to look at a story of a man who did not see things properly. He had a distorted view of his world. He had a distorted view of who God was and of heaven and in hell and, and, and a distorted view of scripture. And with that were dire consequences. And so today, my heart is that we would be given eyes to see like Jesus. That's my heart. That should be our heart cry today. And there are three areas from this passage that we must ask the Lord to give us eyes to see the truth. One, I must, see, I must be given eyes to see uh, my world like Jesus. Two, I must be given eyes to see heaven and hell like Jesus. And I must be given eyes to see scripture like Jesus. Today we are not looking for our perspective, our preferences on reality we are looking for the truth. So join with me to the place where we find truth in Luke chapter 16 of uh, the gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 16 verse 19 is where we are starting and this is a parable, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Here we go. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man, a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. This is such a vivid picture. This is such a descriptive story that Jesus is telling. He's not pulling back the punches. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, the rich man, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham and Lazarus <clears throat> far off at his, and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water to cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. 
It's a very um, unique parable. It's a very unique parable. One of the reasons why it's unique is because actually one of the characters is given a name. That's a very rare occurrence. Uh, It doesn't happen often, and we don't see it in any other parable in Scripture that a, a character is given a name. Jesus will say a woman, the father, the son. They'll give designations, but never a name. And yet somebody is given the name Lazarus, and, and it's, it's got a point to it. The point is, is that Lazarus is a person. Not that this is a real story, but that this man who is poor, who might have been passed by many times, isn't just any man. He has a name. And then it also talks about heaven and hell, where he is in torment. That is hell. Hades, that is hell. And where uh, Lazarus is with, with, with Father Abraham at his side. This is heaven. And, and these, this idea of someone talking from hell to heaven, we've never really had a lot of uh, conversations or seen that much in Scripture. And so it's pretty unique. But the point of this is that we would learn and understand these heavenly realities, these hellish realities, that we would see them truthfully for what they are. You see, this man, this rich man, is who we're going to look at. He was ignorant of the world around him. He was ignorant of Lazarus, and he he was ignorant of what heaven and hell were, and he was ignorant of what Scripture was to be in the nature of salvation. And we're going to look at how the rich man's view was twisted and selfish and how Abraham teaches and corrects him. And we will find out in this, we will also find for ourselves, how we also twist and are tempted to turn our view on the truth as well. The first lesson that Abraham teaches to this man is in verse 25. Look with me at verse 25. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. This is Abraham. He's giving a description to the rich man. It's not a prescription. Maybe some people would read this and think this is about karma. This is not about karma. This is not a teaching that uh, the rich people will all go to hell and poor people will all go to heaven. That's not what is being taught. Abraham is just getting this rich man to stop and take stock of his life. He's saying, you had an opportunity all your life with all the luxury and all the money you had And look at what your pursuits led you to. Let's not take stock, rich man, of how good you had it, but how good did you use it? And Jesus makes a point in this parable of showing two things. One, he shows that Lazarus lived at the gate of this rich man's home. This rich man would have passed him every time he left his home. Every time he would have passed there and and and. Lazarus clearly even, it's, it's said that he desired and he coveted the, what was on this rich man's table. There was, there was some kind of relationship there already. It's not that this rich man didn't know who Lazarus was. was. And also, the rich man recognizes Lazarus. He recognizes him after he's dead. This is not a story of any rich man and any poor man who are irrelevant to each other, but two men who lived in pros, pro, close proximity to each other and who were aware of each other. And what we see is this, 
that the rich man's selfishness and his love for luxury blinded him. It blinded him from the injustices and the needs of Lazarus. You see, money is one of the most blinding temptations of life today, just as it was then. And this is why our prayer and my prayer for us today is, Lord, give me eyes to see my world like Jesus. You see, before getting into this parable, um, the Pharisee, we have to understand the context. And the, turn with me to Luke chapter 16, 14, just a little bit earlier. The, this is what it says. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And when it says him, it means Jesus. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Let's just sit there for a second. That last part of that verse. What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. What does this mean about how we are pursuing things in this world? What we exalt, what we chase after, what we look at the world through. Ask ourselves, is it an abomination in the sight of God? This whole parable that Jesus shares of the rich man and Lazarus is launched in response to the Pharisees mocking Jesus because Jesus was sharing parables right back from Luke 15 at the beginning when he's got tax collectors and sinners sitting around watching him and listening to him. And, and Jesus starts sharing these parables, beautiful parables of uh, the, the shepherd with, who leaves the 99 sheep to, to go and get the one, the woman who chases and lip, looks after, under everything to find one corner even though she had the other nine. The, the parable of the um, prodigal son, the son who goes and, and really uh, dishonors his father and chooses horrible things and comes back and the father receives him with love and celebrates his return. And then even a parable in, at the beginning of chapter 16 of a, a shrewd manager. And this manager, what he does is he actually... Um, chooses to lose money for his owner in order to keep some clientele. And all of this was mocked. All of these parables that you and I, uh, many people today, look back and see such beauty and grace upon, the Pharisees mocked. How are they missing it, you might ask. You might wonder that, but it says so right in this verse in 14. It's because the Pharisees were lovers of money. When the Pharisees heard these parables, they heard about a shepherd who neglected 99 sheep. They heard about a woman who foolishly throws a party for just one coin and a father who is disgraced by his shameful son and is unfair to his faithful one. They heard a story of a, of a manager who loses money for his owner. These are crazy talk to people who love and value money and rich and luxury. But earlier, even in verse 13, Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The rich man served money. The rich man couldn't see what was right there because he was blinded by uh, his money vision, his money goggles. And so it actually kind of reminds me of a, um, of a funny video I saw on the internet, and I've got it here for you to watch, and it's called Hubby Vision. Watch this video called Hubby Vision. 
Hey, are we still going out tonight? Yeah, I just need a minute. All right, I'll go get ready. Hubby vision. See the world through your husband's eyes. Trash out! It's not time yet. There's still plenty of room in there. your shoes in the middle of the room again. Oh, there they are. You ready to go yet? You probably haven't noticed, but I haven't changed clothes yet. Hmm. Whoa, look at the walls. There really is a difference between pebble gray and driftwood. Hey, honey, have you seen the walls? Did you know these pictures are crooked? Nothing fits, everything looks terrible. Let's just go eat dinner. <gasps> it's a pretty funny video. <clears throat> it's, uh, it's, I'm sure there's maybe a few bruised arms right now of wives uh, elbowing their husband, saying, "You got hubby vision. You don't see these things," and uh, and and probably deservingly so. Uh, don't worry, guys. I have something to share later that maybe you can talk to your wife about too. Uh, but let's uh, let's just get back into the scripture here. There's something uh, there's something so perfect uh, about poor Lazarus having a name in this story, and the rich man being nameless. It's really quite unique amongst parables, um, but I, I found for myself this week as I was thinking about this um, that it was easy for me to stop and think of the names of five people richer than me, and I felt pretty free to do it. I didn't feel any conviction or discomfort thinking about it. Maybe, maybe I would have to work a little bit through jealousy, but on the flip side, when you start thinking of the names of five people with less than you, or who, or who live more generously than you, there's a different feeling. There's a different feeling of maybe conviction, or being humble, or grateful. It's so appropriate that Lazarus had a name, because <clears throat> we have to understand that we need to humanize people more because what money will do is it will cause us 
to elevate the value of things over people. And as a country and as a church, we have a lot more than most of the world. We are very blessed. Just the fact that you are able to watch this means you have internet, means you have a screen of some sort. The goal of this passage is not that you would feel guilty for having much. That's not the point. The point is that we need to feel responsible for those with less. That's what it means to have eyes to see the world like Jesus. The second lesson that Abraham teaches the rich man is found in verse 26. Verse 26 says, And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, uh, and, and, that's, and that's when he says uh, to Abraham, Then I beg you, Father, to send to my father's house, uh, for I have five brothers. But let's just focus here on verse 26. I've actually got a fan going on here that's actually flipping my Bible open, uh, but we'll, we'll fix that later. Uh, this passage is about heaven and hell. We can't, uh, we can't avoid that. And we shouldn't avoid that. This passage isn't meant to let us off the hook to pretend that heaven and hell aren't real, but instead it digs even further because it reminds us of just how permanent and purposeful heaven and hell are in God's kingdom. You see, we, we have to be careful. And I've been praying as I prepare for this that I would be careful because we should not approach this doctrine flippantly or trivially because like me, I'm sure there are many of you who can think of the names and faces of those to whom we love that we have lost who we know by God's word and by their testimony are awaiting judgment to be in hell forever. And, and this shocks us. And it should. If, if there is any doctrine, any doctrine that challenges the heart of our culture and, and maybe challenges the belief of our hearts, it's probably this doctrine. The tempta- there's so many temptations we have towards shifting our view on hell. But all of these will lead us to heresies which, which really offer less hope and not more. And this is just what the rich man did. This is just what he did. This is why he was mixed up about, and about where he was and where Lazarus was. And this is why Abraham has to explain to him between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. It was done on purpose. You see, the first thing that he did was he ignored what led him there. He ignored what led him there. When he proposed to Abraham, send Lazarus as a miracle to convince my brothers, he wasn't just being evangelistic, he was also in turn accusing. He was saying that if, if, if he had a miracle, he would have not ended up in hell. And what Lazarus says to him is, is important. You had Moses and the prophets. You had the word of God. 
You see, this is the temptation. The temptation is to ignore what leads people to hell. We're tempted to ignore that because we want to absolve ourselves from our responsibility for what happens to us after death. We want to put all the onus on God. But this leads to a terrible, terrible, wrongful teaching called universalism. Universalism is the belief that everyone, no matter what, will go to heaven. No matter how they lived, no matter how they behaved, no matter what they said or believed, God will take them into heaven. That's what the belief is in universalism. And those who believe in universalism are ignoring the reality of true evil. This, this belief is an absolute offense to the holiness and the value of God. What this belief proposes is that God must receive those who despise, reject, rebel, and ignore him on earth. And that he would he would ex- allow sin. You see, this is proposed by people who say that if God was truly loving, he would just save everyone. But I would say those people don't truly love God because if you love God, you would understand that you don't want him to be so offended so brought down, diminished in value and in holiness and in preciousness by saying that defaming and rejecting him has no punishment. And this is not a place where we get to propel ourselves on some kind of pedestal as Christians. No. We too have despised, rejected, rebelled. We too were enemies while we were yet enemies Christ died for us. But we also understand that there was a punishment that had to happen and it wasn't done on us. And so we still deserve hell. Yet we are received into heaven because Christ paid that eternal price that we deserved and only he could. You know, the choices we make on earth now, they really do matter. We cannot ignore what happens. We must not treat our choices and our beliefs on earth as trivial. The second mistake he made is he ignored hell's permanence. He ignored that. The rich man thought he could just ask for relief. Send Lazarus! He thought that he could still make demands. But Abraham clearly says that the chasm was fixed so that those who would pass from here to you may not be able. This was the purpose of heaven and hell. And this is the other temptation we make with the doctrine of hell. It's, it's to believe that any pain after death is just temporary pain. And that leads to some ideas of, of annihilationism or, or, or purgatory. Right? If we ignore the permanence of hell... We start to believe in things like purgatory. And purgatory is a belief that there's just a temporary place or a state of punishment by which we are given some kind of second chance or a a bestowing of special grace that may be even purchased with a little money, some, uh, some religions would say. And that eventually we're invited off to heaven. Hell is forever. 
annihilationism. Annihilationism teaches that people will endure a temporary punishment and then be wiped from existence and, and, the, and there would be an end to their punishment and their suffering. And, and a lot of this comes from a misunderstanding of what judgment and what justice really is. Because what people will say is they'll say things like, well, I only sinned for 80 years of my life and our sins don't take that long to commit. I just do it pretty quickly and I did a pretty good job of some other nice things. Why eternal punishment? Why forever? And the reality is that we have to understand justice. We have to understand that punishment for guilt is not based off the length of the crime. It's based on the value of the victim or the one offended. You and I don't blink over a spider being squished. In fact, we probably applaud each other. We don't cry over a branch being snapped, although there might be a few people out there. But we definitely stop when we hear about a dog being hit by a car or, or a person being harmed. You see, the, the crime is not measured by the act, but by whom the act is committed against. And so when we think about sin, our worldly vision, our twisted idea about sin would say that sin hurts our family and sin hurts us and sin hits, hurts the world. And yeah, those are all true. But you know, the greatest offense of sin isn't any of those. The greatest offense of sin is against the God, the holy God and creator of the universe. You see, if God is of infinite worth, then the due punishment will be of infinite length. And this, this is sobering. It, again, it should not bring up any pride in us as Christians or as people who uh, believe in Christ. We, when we truly understand the harm of our sins, we understand that it's not most harmful in our experience here on earth. It's most harmful in the heavens to the God, our creator, I can't come up with some idea that I've earned or I've chosen heaven. What I choose when I choose sin is I choose to sin against God. And what I deserve is I deserve hell. And it's because what I must understand is the surpassing worth of the God who I sin against. The rich man, he was blind to the permanence and purpose of hell because he didn't value the God he offended. We must stop and take a moment to understand that a sin against God is an offense against the most holy, precious, powerful being. And it's a crime of the highest degree. And we must know that God doesn't enjoy this. God is not maniacally up there and twisting his mustache. No. As some people might defame or say, no, Ezekiel 18.23 says God's heart. Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked? Oh, it seems like we've got the wrong passage on the screen. I'm sorry. But I'll, here's what it says. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Rather, am I not pleased 
when they turn from their ways and live? Pastor Edward Donnelly has written some excellent books and preached on hell a lot. And he brings to our attention that there are really three types of punishment in our world. But our culture only recognizes two. There's remedial punishment, there's preventative punishment, and there's retributive punishment. Remedial punishment punishes for the sake of making us better. But this is not what hell is. Hell doesn't make people better like purgatory propels. And then there's preventative punishment. Punishment for the sake of keeping us from making a mistake, either for the first time or the second time. And hell may somewhat work like that in that hell is totally an incentive for the living on earth to turn towards Christ. It is preventative in that nature. But it is not meant to just keep bad people from doing bad things. When you are in hell, you can continue to sin. No, hell is retributive, which in our culture is an um, undesirable uh, view of punishment. Because retributive punishment is punishment due to the value of the crime committed. We've tried to get rid of this in all areas of our society. But it's true, isn't it? This is a real version of punishment that we should not dismiss. That people and crime should be punished due to the value of the crime committed. This is an, a recompense for the evil done. You know, honestly, this is, a, this is a tough truth. This is a tough truth for me to teach. And it's tough and sobering truth for me to swallow, but... But just because I don't like it doesn't make it not true. Just because you don't like it doesn't make it not true. There are lots of things I don't like. I don't like watching chick flicks, <laughs> but it's good for my marriage. Like I watch them with my wife. I'm not watching them on my own. Uh, anyway. <laughs> I don't like changing the cat litter, or changing diapers for that matter, but... It keeps my house from smelling like poop. And I don't like working out. And I really don't really enjoy much physical activity, but, you know, Dr. Josh tells me it's good for my health, so <laughs> I do it the odd time. Just because I don't like these things doesn't mean that they don't serve a purpose, and it doesn't mean that they aren't real. It doesn't mean that they aren't of value to myself or others. You see, it will be tempting to dismiss the doctrine of hell or to try our best to find another angle to more beautify it or, or rebrand it. But we must ask that the Lord gives us eyes to see heaven and hell like Jesus. Hell is real and we all deserve it, but there is one way, one person by which you can be rescued from it. And it's not by your merit but by trusting that Jesus loves you so much that he would forgive you and pay for the death and punishment that you and I deserve. And in turn, you're given the promise of eternal life in his presence. That is good news, good gospel news. And in light of the reality of hell, it's life-changing. 
I'll quickly get through this last lesson that Abraham teaches the rich man. In verse 27, would you look with me? And he said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And, and, and then he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Again, we have to remember this rich man, when he proposes that Abraham send Lazarus as a miracle to convince his brothers, he's also in turn accusing that if he had a miracle, he would have not ended up in hell. And the point Abraham makes to the rich man is that you had the law and the prophets. You had the Old Testament. You had the Bible. You had everything you needed for salvation in Scripture. And this is what we learn. We learn that the rich man was blind to the nature of salvation because he doubted the testimony of Scripture. The doctrine of salvation is beautiful. And in one short conversation, a child can understand it. But you can spend your whole life still studying it as well. And the problem is that our understanding of the nature of salvation is distorted. It's disfigured by culture and churches trying to rebrand it and change it and trying to sell it and, and, and featuring things that don't come with it aren't needed. There are teachers today that are teaching things that propel exactly what this man is proposing, saying that if without an experienced miracle of someone coming back from the dead or some kind of healing or anything like that, that people won't believe in God. And this is baloney. Be careful of churches and teachers that say you need a miracle to believe. Be careful of anyone who says, I need more evidence than the word of God. Scripture itself is a miracle. It is timeless. It is revered. It is always relevant. It has been the most studied book in all of history, and it will stay the most studied book in all of history. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. You have to understand, the breath of God, think of what we hear about the breath of God. The breath of God is what gave life to man. The breath of God is what God breathed the Holy Spirit into the the disciples at Pentecost. And God breathed life to the scriptures. The Bible itself is a miracle and it's an, the only miracle necessary and, and also it's, it's easily accessible. As Abraham points out, it's not enough to just believe in the miraculous. It's not enough to believe in, in, in spirituality or, or simply to believe that there is a God. God tells you and challenge you, challenges us to believe and accept him as he is revealed in scripture. The Bible says in Acts 4.12, there is salvation by no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The only saving name is the name of Jesus Christ. And it needs to amaze us that God wants to be known in scripture. God wants to be known so badly that he made a book of his most 
confrontational, his most compassionate, his most controversial uh, interactions with the world so that we might know him. That this would be held and, and revered throughout history is not by the works of man, but by the power of God that we might have an a, a English version, uh, a translation from some of the earliest manuscripts. No other ancient scripture, no other ancient document has the amount of uh, copies, let alone the most consistency across those amounts of copies, let alone the most nearness to the date and timing of the actual occurrences. Some would think that the more you read scripture, the more God seems to be like us, more relatable God becomes in some sense. But what you discover is really not that. What you discover is how otherworldly and how holy and majestic he is. You discover how his character cuts through our hearts and cuts through all of culture, cuts through all of our temporary perspectives to reveal how far off we truly are from being as perfect and wonderful and loving as him. Yet, it doesn't leave us wallowing in our guilt. Instead, it offers a story of rescue and redemption. And this is why our prayer should be, God, give me eyes to see scripture like Jesus. And here's the good news. We have been given the word. We have more free and better access to it, unlike anyone else in all of history. You think people were excited about the printing press? We have the Bible on our phones, in our pockets. You can hit play and you can listen to a guy who will actually read out to you with a British accent if you want it. And he will read it to you in a way that he pronounces all the Hebrew names correctly and never stumbles. For free! We must come back to God's word. We must come back to God's word as our means for affirming our belief. You know, knowing God versus just depending on miracles, it kind of reminds me of, of just marriage a little bit. You don't really understand the nature of marriage until you've really been in the thick of it with your spouse. Um, and I, I'm sure there are people here, here who are going, look, look, kid, you've been married for less than 10 years. You barely know what you're talking about. And you're right. <laughs> I really don't know what I'm talking about. But everyone thinks they're the perfect spouse until they get married. After that, it's just, you see toothpaste stuck in the sink and toilet seats left up and, and it's your turn to get the baby and um, <laughs> things like this. You know, if someone really wants to be prepared for marriage, they need to see more than these miraculous uh, chick flick movies. Uh, there you go, man. You might have an out on not watching those anymore. You need to see more than just Instagram pictures of perfect marriages. You need to understand the nature of the person you've married. And we need to understand the nature of the God who saves us. Not just experience the, the, the nervous, beautiful, aesthetic ideas of miracles. And, and yes, those are wonderful. And yes, we will call God to do amazing things. But we need to know him through his word. God is a living, active, very real being who has made himself known through scripture and fully revealed through the person and teachings and actions of Jesus Christ. All in all, it's so easy for our view to be distorted. It's so easy for us in this postmodern world to think that we can just apply our perspective on Christ and on truth. But we need to ask God 
Give us eyes to see like Jesus. I'm just going to invite the band to come up right now. You know, it's only when we truly submit to the true perspective that God has on the world, on heaven, how he has taught us about heaven and hell, and on his word. It's only when we submit to that will we truly find freedom and peace and everlasting life. You know, if you're scared of hell today, that's good. We should be. We should be soberly understanding that we don't deserve to be in the glorious presence of the God to whom we sin against. But you don't actually need to live in fear because there is a way by which you can be saved. It's by the name of Jesus Christ. So if you would today put your faith in him, if you would seek after him through his word, learn to know him and to love him, and give and dedicate your life to following him, you will experience rescue and salvation. You will find freedom. And you will have the promise of eternity in his presence. Let me pray. Lord, there are so many ways by which we can go wrong, by which uh, the world tempts us to twist and turn our perspective. Lord, draw us today to see you the way, are, we, the way we are meant to see you. Lead us in the way that is everlasting. May we see the realities of our world and you the true way. Help us that we might eagerly evangelize and tell others about the good news of Jesus and the terrors of hell. We want to worship you for the way that you are deserving of worship. And so we dedicate this time and we sing your praises. In your holy name we pray. Amen.